John, thank you very much. Uh, that was a, a request uh, that I gave him for that particular song. Uh, we are uh, in the middle of a, a series that's a part of a bigger series. For those of you who are guests here with us today, thank you uh, for joining with us for worship. Uh, but we're calling this our Summer of Love series. We are in 1 Corinthians 13, a couple weeks deep into chapter 13, uh, which is, like I say, a smaller portion of a bigger series. Uh, Several, several, several months ago, we started into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and uh, we now find ourselves here in chapter 13, and uh, we are looking at the actions of love. The Corinthian church was quite divided, a lot of uh, fighting going on in the Corinthian church. There was a lot of one-upmanship going on in the Corinthian church. They fought over leadership. Some liked Paul, others liked Apollos. They fought over viewpoints in relation to what was considered sexually immoral. They fought over viewpoints in relation to marriage and singleness. They fought over uh, if, if a person should eat meat offered to idols. Uh, the wealthy would, would ostracize the poor by, by putting them in the side room of the house while they would partake of communion together. And most recently, we've been looking at the spiritual gifts and how the spiritual gifts had become a divisive factor in the church at Corinth, they were playing the favorite game with each other. Uh, if you have uh, siblings, you've probably played the favorite game uh, with each other before. Uh, some of you are already smiling and you know exactly where I'm going with this. Uh, but I grew up and had an older brother, uh, a younger brother and a younger sister. The younger ones were much younger than us older ones and still are, actually. Uh, they haven't caught up with us, so just in case you were wondering. And uh, it was kind of universally understood uh, for a number of years that I was my mom's favorite kid. And, and as I, they would say that, I, would, I wouldn't argue back. I mean, why wouldn't I be their favorite kid? You guys, you guys have seen each other. I'm obviously the best one out of the bunch. Uh, but this would be the argument. I would kind of argue back. No, no, it's very clear that my sister is the favorite kid. She was the only girl. She was the youngest. And so that came with a lot of perks and being spoiled. And uh, now it's kind of universally understood in our family that my younger brother, Brian, seems to be the favorite kid. I think it's always the one who lives the furthest away and maybe uh, withholds their affection for my mom that gets the greatest attention. I think there's some psychological uh, game that's going on there between the siblings. But that's, that's the favorite game. And, and some in the Corinthian church were playing the favorite game. They considered themselves to be God's favorite. Because they had a certain spiritual gift, they considered themselves to be God's favorite. In particular, it was the gift of tongues that they thought, well, if, if God gave me the gift of tongues, then I'm obviously the best. And if you don't have the gift of tongues, obviously he doesn't like you as much. You're not as good as me. To address that bad theology that was leading to bad behavior, which that's always the way it works, our bad theology, our bad beliefs lead to bad behavior. It's the way life operates. Paul writes to them, chapters 12, 13, and 14. And he addresses the issues of spiritual gifts in these chapters, making the point that every member matters, every gift matters. And as a matter of fact, some of those gifts that, that the Spirit gives that seem less important are actually the most important gifts. He drives home the point that they need each other in the church. 
And then in chapter 14, he argues that that prophecy is better than tongues, and we've already covered all of chapter 12 and most of chapter 14, but to really put everything in focus, there's chapter 13. And we've drawn this out in the past, but you have chapter 12 on one hand, you have chapter 14 on the other hand. What's in the middle is Paul's point of emphasis. He bookends the argument. Chapter 12, spiritual gifts, you need to get along. I can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Chapter 14, prophecy is better than tongues. But what's the real issue? What's the real argument? What does Paul really want them to understand? And that's chapter 13, the one necessary component. It's that four-letter word, love. Love. A couple weeks back, we took a tour through the Scriptures to see the emphasis that that God places on love from the Old Testament into the New Testament. I'll summarize that tour with with one, one statement Jesus makes from John chapter 13, where he says this, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. So Jesus says there's one quality that that people will see in you, and they'll say, Oh, must be a follower of Jesus. So when they look at you and they see you doing this thing, they'll know immediately who you are. By this shall all men know you're my disciples. By your faithfulness to be in church. He didn't say that. Your faithfulness to give in the offerings. He didn't say that either. By this shall all men know you're my disciples. By the love by the love you have for one another. Love is to be the defining quality of our lives. And here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he beautifully defines and describes love for us in chapter 13. Love is patient and love is kind. Last week, we talked through those two qualities of love and sent you out with the assignment to discuss these things. And even if you missed last week, I sent it out in an email so you don't have an excuse. You were supposed to discuss and think through what patience looks like, what kindness looks like in relation to love. And I wonder what encouraged you this week and what convicted you this week as you considered patience and kindness. Some of the questions that we put out there, not really questions, but statements, was this love Love bears with certain annoyances and inconveniences without complaint. We got pretty real with that one, right? There's all sorts of people that annoy us. There's inconveniences that annoy us. Love does not lose its temper when it's provoked. Love steadily perseveres. It continues to forgive 70 times 7 as Jesus would tell Peter. Love is considerate and it is helpful to others. It it takes the initiative. It's always ready to show compassion, especially to those who are in need. Well, I mentioned last week that I wanted to open this up. I wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe share some things that you realized about yourself, some opportunities that you saw this week at patience and kindness, and uh, just to be a blessing and an encouragement Uh, to each other. So I want to open it up. Uh, What were some of the things that you guys discussed 
uh, as you thought through patience and kindness this week. And now is the awkward portion of service. It's what a church is, though. We're here to encourage each other. Anybody? Anybody just want to confess where you lost patience this week and you just, you lost it? Confession? Ch- okay, Chuck's ready to confess. No. <laughs> okay, good. Today we're going to move on to the next two actions, or, or really because Paul turns negative. These are the, the inactions of love. And we're going to start with this. Love does not envy. It doesn't envy. So what, what Paul describes here is an intense negative feeling over another person's achievements or their success. Another way to put it is, is jealousy. That would be a word that we could use to describe it. Uh, Some are tempted to consider this idea of envy, jealousy uh, over other people's successes as as more of a minor sin issue. It's not a big deal. And I really do think that we don't think it's a big deal because this is just simply ingrained into our culture in America. Uh, The idea of envy is part of the American experience in the American way. If you watch a TV commercial or see an advertisement, they know it. They, They pull on the envy strings to get you to buy their particular products. But from the opening pages of the Bible, we find the dangers of envy and jealousy. It's not a harmless sin. As a matter of fact, it was envy that Satan used to tempt Eve to eat of the fruit. Remember what he told her? Eve, if you eat of the fruit, you'll be like God. God is holding something back from you. And if you eat of the fruit, you can have what he's holding back from you. He uses envy to pull. And all sin has catastrophically descended from that one particular sin of envy. And it doesn't stop there. You flip one more page over from Genesis chapter 3 and you read in Genesis chapter 4 of the first murder. Cain killed Abel. Why? Jealousy and envy. God accepted Abel's sacrifice. He didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. And out of envy, Cain killed his brother. A few more pages through the stories of Genesis, and we see Joseph's brother selling him into slavery out of envy. Why was Daniel in the lion's den? It was envy. And the stories could continue as we move through the pages of Scripture, but we need to focus in on what's happening in Corinth to understand a little better the context of what Paul is saying. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you would. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 7. Here's what Paul writes. But our brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, but you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you are still in the flesh. For while there is 
jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. And so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Here we see where where Paul has already addressed the envy that they had in relation to the leaders that they liked in the church. We could talk about how the poor, no doubt, were envious of the wealthy as a result of what was taking place in chapter 10 in relation to the agape feast and the communion they were partaking of. There's a lot of struggle that was happening. But the immediate context of chapter 13 is their envy regarding certain spiritual gifts. And instead of being grateful uh, that, that brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so had been gifted by God in their congregation with that dynamic gift of tongues, and that somebody else across the room was gifted with prophecy and somebody else was gifted with healing, and instead of being grateful for those gifts, they were overcome with envy. I wish I had that gift. And here's what James writes about envy. James chapter 3, it says this, but if you have bitter jealousy... And selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not a wisdom that comes from above. But it is earthly, it is unspiritual, it is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every vile practice. Some of you may remember in chapter 14... Paul says, I just wish things would be done decently and in order. Why was there disorder? Envy, jealousy, strife. And so, I mean, we can look at that and say, ah, we, we never really struggled in with envy. Not, not, in, not in that way. And we would be wrong if we came to that conclusion. Just like the Corinthians, we can quickly and easily become envious as we consider other people. Maybe you've thought, why can't I have the faith that so-and-so has? I'm always fearful. I'm always worried. And and, and they have this faith. They're like a rock, and and they're always looking on the positive side of things, and they're always happy, and they always got a smile on their face. And I, I wish I had that gifting of faith that they have in their life. And as our envy grows of that person, here's what happens. We start to distance ourselves from them. We make excuses. I just don't like being around people that are that positive. <laughs> and we begin to pull away from the very person that we need. They're strong in an area where I'm weak. And guess what? They need you as well. And we're meant to work together. That's the disorder. That's the separation that envy can bring. I've struggled in the past and probably will struggle in the future listening to other pastors, like on podcasts. I try to listen in to other pastors because that feeds me and I enjoy that, except when they're really, really good communicators. They got great personality, they got great humor. And eventually I'm like, man, why can't I have that personality? Why can't I be that funny? Nobody ever laughs at my jokes. 
and I can be overcome with envy. That wasn't a joke, Josh. Man, he's laughing at my, see, it's the timing or something. In a church that's made up of different people, different backgrounds, different personalities, different families, different occupations, different gifting, different interests, different races, different economic classes, it is very easy to become envious. But envy is not love. We can grow envious of of people's relationships. Sometimes people grow envious of somebody else's spouse. And that's not always in in a sexual way. That's just simply, they look and say, why can't my spouse be more like that? Why couldn't I have married somebody like that? I'm married to this numbskull. Or we look at other people's kids and say, why can't my kids behave like that? Why can't they act like that? Some may be tempted to be envious of of others' parents, and, and not so much that, well, I wish I had parents that parented me like that, but some of you don't have parents anymore. And you watch other people, and they have both their parents. That's tough. We can grow envious of people's possessions. That's the one we think about most often. Stinking neighbor got another boat, and I don't even have one boat. And we grow envious of possessions. We grow envious of occupations and gifting. I wish I had a job like them. We grow envious of people's circumstances. Right? You look at people sometimes, you say, man, their life just seems so easy. Mine is very complicated. We grow envious of personalities. Wish I was more extroverted. We grow envious of people's personal traits, their physical appearance. I wish I had rock hard abs like that. It's a real struggle, isn't it? And it's all around us. Envy causes us at first to feel sorry for ourselves. Feel down. What, what's wrong with me? Why don't I get that? And we, we have this in, in, internal tantrum. And then what happens is we grow resentful of other people. So we feel sorry for ourselves. And then the people that have the thing we want, we grow resentful of them. And we, we don't want to be around them. We get angry at, at God's injustice as we perceive it because God didn't give us what we think we should have had. Another negative consequence of envy is we focus too much attention on the one that we're jealous of and the things that they have that we want, that we neglect the things that God's given us. I've seen it happen over and over in marriages that that they're envious of this person's spouse and they're not even paying attention to their own spouse. Or they're envious of this person's job and they're they're not doing the job that God's given them to do. And it can happen within the confines of a church. We grow envious of the gifting of another and then we don't fulfill the gift that God's given us to do and it begins to bring destruction and disorder into the church. Think of David and Saul. They came up this morning actually in our time of prayer. Saul was not a great king. He was the first king of Israel. But uh, 
God took the kingdom away from him because he had a, he had a big problem with just simply disobeying God. God would say, Saul, here's what I want you to do, and he would do something different. He thought it was a better idea. And so as God takes the kingdom away from Saul, he gives it to this shepherd boy named David, who was described as a man after God's own heart. And eventually what happens, without really Saul knowing that David is anointed king, this is kind of a secret at this point, Saul finds David useful and brings him into his court. David can play instruments and sing songs, many that we sing and uh, we read regularly here from the book of Psalms, and they would bring comfort to Saul. So David would come, he would play, Saul would be soothed. And then came that one day when David showed up to deliver some food to his brothers, and he saw Goliath. He said, why isn't anybody doing anything? And so he gets his rocks and his sling, and he goes out and he takes care of it. And from that point on, he's not really a harp player and a soother. He becomes a great warrior. And the songs begin to be sung, Saul has killed his hundreds, and David has killed his thousands. And Saul becomes jealous. And the spears start flying. And he begins to chase David all over the wilderness. Why? Envy and jealousy. David really has the opposite approach, doesn't he? He had opportunities to take Saul out. He had opportunities to move in, but he was waiting on God's timing. He wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. So so that's this relationship. But there's another relationship that's tied in there that I want to point out. See, Saul had a son, and his name was Jonathan. Jonathan would be the next in line for the kingdom to take from Saul. He would be the next king of Israel, the main guy. And him and David were buds. They had love for each other. Jonathan wasn't given to envy like his dad. He wasn't given to jealousy like his dad. He did whatever he could to try to make peace, to protect both his father and David throughout this a difficult time in the kingdom. In that story, we see, we see both what envy looks like and the destruction it brings to a relationship, and we see what true love looks like and the, the, the joy and, and power that it brings to a relationship. So what does it look like for us? What does non-envious love look like? These are in your bulletin, and again, these are points that I would encourage you to discuss this week with uh, your, your family, with friends. Number one, love accepts the wise judgment of God regarding our positions in this life. Love doesn't say, God, you got it wrong. I need a better gift. I need a better wife. I need better kids. I need a better car. It, it trusts God that he got it right. See, and what does that lead to? When I'm trusting God and saying, God, You've, you've given me all these things. We're, we're grateful. We're thankful. That's the opposite of being envious. We're content. Second, love serves those who we perceive as better than us, higher, maybe, maybe they're in a higher social class, they got a better personality than us. However you perceive that, it serves those people and it serves those that, that you would consider lower than yourself. It doesn't matter. It serves both. That's what love does. Three, when love sees someone who's popular, 
Successful, beautiful, all of these are arbitrary terms, subjective to define. Talented, it's glad for them. Doesn't resent them. I don't think I'm the only one that as I even read that, I think of a lot of different people (laughs) that I have resented over the years because they had what I didn't. It's a battle for our heart. Let's look at the flip side of envy. Love doesn't boast. Last week we learned that patience is the ability to to take anything from anybody. It's to hold up, to forbear, to forgive, to take anything from anybody. And the flip side of that was kindness, which is this ability to give anything to anybody. I want want to serve, I want to give. Well, what we find here is that, that boasting is the opposite of envy. Envy is wanting what someone else has. Boasting is an attempt to make other people envious of what you have. To boast is to heap praise on yourself, to to behave as a, a braggart. Another one wrote it this way, love doesn't parade its accomplishments to others. And and to be clear, I I think everybody in this room would agree, nobody likes a braggart. Nobody likes what we've called a show-off. We've all been around them, and it's very possible that we have all been them at some point in our lives from time to time. It's just weird sometimes being around them. It's like they create this fantasy world. I remember uh, when I was in my uh, close to to mid-20s, I was working at O'Reilly the distribution center, and there was a, a young man who was just fresh out of high school. He's 18, and he got hired on. He wasn't there that long. Don't even remember his name. But anytime anybody would share like an experience or something they did over the weekend or past story, this guy would, would match that story, and uh, it would somehow be better than that other story. And I remember this, this happened at nearly every break, uh, every opportunity, there was this story to match this story. You know, I walked away, this kid's 18. I'm like, he's lived like five lifetimes already. Reincarnation may be real if he's had all of these experiences. He was a braggart. And nobody liked to be around him. The Corinthian church was full of braggarts, boasters. Boasting about their gifting, boasting about their liberty, boasting about their wisdom. And Paul's already addressed it. Jump back with me, chapter 1. Look, at, look with me, chapter 1, verse 26 Right out of the gate, opening of the letter, here's what he reminds them. One of my favorite passages in the whole letter, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. So it gets very personal. Consider yourself. Consider your life. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. And not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did he do that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus and have become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in 
the Lord. From the get-go, he's trying to put them in their place. You guys aren't very smart. You guys aren't very strong. Chapter 4, verse 7, after discussing their, their great wisdom, notice the air quotes. Paul asked him this question, and I love this one, probably my favorite out of the book. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Everything you have in your life is of God's grace. It's a gift that he's given you. And Paul just says, what do you have? What do you have to boast in? It's nothing you did. It's everything from him. Boast in him. Chapter 3, 21, 5, 6, both very similar in their tone. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned that, that, that boasters are off-putting, and we would all agree with that and say, yeah, it's just weird to be around them. But even that doesn't deter us from boasting <laughs> from time to time. And struggling with voicing our accomplishments. Bragging on ourselves comes with negative consequences. C.S. Lewis actually called bragging the utmost evil. I say, well, that's taken it a little bit too far, but consider it because it's the epitome of pride. Bragging puts ourselves first and everything else after us, including God. Puts us to the front of the line, puts us at the first of the sentence as we would think about boasting. One quote that I found helpful and very convicting was this, without love, a person may feel that using their gifts, they're doing somebody else a favor. Ouch. I'll be a blessing to you, brother. I'll be a blessing to you, sister. What do you have that you didn't receive? Or that other people should be grateful for them. Where's my thanks? Where's the accolades? Gordon Fee wrote this. He said, it's not possible to boast and love at the same time. The only action, uh, the one action, wants others to think highly of oneself, whether they're deserving or not, and the other cares for none of that, but only for the good of the community and the glory of God. Boasting puts the attention on, on you or on the one who's boasting and not the other people. And, and as we've been defining love, love is, love is what? Love is you before me. Love is you before me. So turn to the person to your right. If you don't have a person on your right, just look at the wall. And say, say this with me, okay? Love is you before me. No, look at them, you guys. Come on, come on. Look at the person. Uh, love is you before me. Okay, well, let's do it better. Turn to another person who's near you and say this with me. Ready? Love is you before me. Okay. That was really hard, wasn't it? I think my wife had a better feel with the kindergartners last month that she worked, and then, then that was easier. Love prefers to focus more on others and not self. 
Love prefers to focus on other people, not self. Love doesn't flaunt accomplishments, but it, it takes an interest and rejoices in the accomplishments of others. I thought of that, I thought of social media. Sometimes it's easier to boast on social media. It's not that face-to-face awkwardness when you're bragging on yourself. It's, it's a little easier that way. Love is driven by, by the truth that we're equal. That everybody you know is in need of Christ. That everybody you know is dependent upon grace. Yourself being the chief of sinners. That's the way love views things. I want you to talk about that one this week. We talk about independence, we talk about our country. We're equally in need of Christ. We're equally in need of grace. That's the perspective that love has. There's no favoritism. There's no one who's better than another. It's hard, isn't it? Patience, kindness. Now we added two more. Envy, boasting. Can we slow this down a little bit? So you focus, focus a little more attention. It's hard to do this, but in Christ, if you are in Christ, Meaning you are a follower of him, you're a believer in him, he's given you new life. Loving this way is possible, but without him, it is not possible. I'll give you that bad news right now. You cannot love this way apart from Christ because this is the way that he loved. This is who he is. He was patient, he's kind. Talked about it last week. He's not given to envy, he's not given to boasting. As a matter of fact, if you go to Philippians 2, and we won't, we won't take the time to go there, but I do encourage you to read Philippians 2, 1 through 10 at some point this week, maybe as you would have a discussion about these things because you see in there the character of Christ that he is the opposite of envy. He is the opposite of boasting. He humbles himself. Takes on the form of his own creation. He dies the humiliating death on the cross. Not for personal gain. But for you, he embodies non-envious love. He embodies patience and kindness. He embodies a love that does not boast. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't know if I can do this. If you're a believer, you embody him. His spirit is at work inside of you, empowering you to love this very way. That's why he says, my disciples will be known for this because I'm going to put in them a spirit that's going to awaken in them the ability to avoid envy, the ability to avoid boasting and be kind and be patient. Are you in Christ you put your faith and trust in him? Have you come to the point in your life where you recognize you can't love correctly? You're a sinner. You're overwhelmed with it, and you need a Savior to step in. Jesus is the Savior, the only one. 
And he says, I'll make you a new creation. It's incredible. Yesterday uh, evening, my wife was running errands, and I asked her if she could pick up some buns from the grocery store for, for today. She came home from Aldi with a, a giant sack full of hamburger buns, or hot dog buns. And I was like, oh, we need hamburger buns. We're doing, we're doing pulled pork. She's like, can't we just eat out of that? And if it was us, we probably would. We just, we do that. But I thought, ah, some people may think that's weird. So, so, so we had this discussion. I ended up taking them back to Aldi last night and see if they would exchange and we could go that route. This is a mistake she made. Not to, not to, <laughs> not to really point her out. But I need to emphasize as much as I can, it was a mistake. Okay. No problems, Faith, but it was a mistake. And so I go back to Aldi, and the guy's like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll exchange them. And so I get in line, and there's this confusion. I've got the hamburger buns now. I've still got the hot dog buns. And he starts doing these hot dog buns. He starts giving me cash back. And then he, he gives me all this different cash back, and he rang it up on several different receipts, whatever. I've got pockets full of pennies and change and dollar bills and stuff. And then all of a sudden, he's just like, just, he's like, just have the hamburger buns for free. And I'm like, Really? I'm like, I'm like, I can just bring him up. I'll swipe the card. And he's like, no, just, just have him for free. And this morning while the guys were praying, it just kind of came full circle in my mind thinking through this. This is why I emphasize the mistake that my wife made. That's the way God works in us. We, we mess up. We make mistakes. But if salvation comes in, and it's like just getting all this cash <laughs> and getting, getting these free things, this grace that just flows into our lives to be forgiven, to have a spirit that works in us, to grow us, to change us, that we can overcome our, our weaknesses and our sins. That's the salvation that we enjoy in Christ. And it's better than, than free hamburger buns from Aldi. There's a lot of grace that he gives. So if you haven't come to the point in your life where you've confessed your need and went back to the store and said, I messed up, do so and he will shower you with the grace that you do not deserve. That's what it means. And if you're here and you're a follower and you, of Christ and you, you would admit, okay, I, I've been envious. I've been a boaster. Haven't been patient. Haven't been kind. Repent. So I'm done with it. That's not the way I'm supposed to live. That's not the action that the Spirit's trying to produce in me. I'm done with it. Repent. Relent. Replace it with true love. Christ-like love. So this week I want to encourage you to discuss these, these principles, discuss these definitions as they're, they're listed out there for you in your bulletin, what, what a non-boasting love looks like, what a, what a non... Uh, go back to patience and kindness... Look at those things. Non-envious.
Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. As you think through those things, guys, I'm just going to reiterate this. Because, I mean, you can come here and you can listen to this. And you you can be like, yeah, I get it. I'm an envious person. I'm a boaster. But if we don't work this down into the day-to-day, and if we don't have discussions outside of this room about this stuff, you're not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. Being a part of a church means that we have these conversations, that we take it to that next level so that we're, we're discipling each other and working that, whether that's within the home or inviting other people into your home to have these conversations. Because you cannot, that's the whole point of 12, 13, 14, you cannot do it alone. You have to have the people around you. And we have to have these real conversations, praying for, encouraging each other as we do life together. That's what it means to belong. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?